You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls down. You already know. How was Billy killed? Where is his body? What happened? People don't ever have Johnny's best interest in mind, I think with the exception of his children. I'm a like boring, hammer wielding, like brute half the time. My favorites were like truck drivers who were crying. I don't know if it was a hex cast by a certain other leading person in the show. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Pop-Tarts. Me, 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 me. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And our guest today is so creative and so talented in so many different mediums. It's very difficult to decide where to begin when introducing him. Io Tillett Wright is an artist, author, activist, and storyteller. I first became aware of his work when our boss here at Bust Magazine started listening to his hit podcast, The Ballad of Billy Balls, last year and got half the office completely hooked on it. Io is also the author of the 2017 memoir, Darling Days, that documents Wright's wild upbringing in downtown New York in the 1980s and the seeds that eventually blossomed into his awakening as a trans man. His TED Talk, Fifty Shades of Gay, about sexuality and gender, has been viewed over three million times. And his new photography book, Self-Evident Truths, just came out in September. It's a collection of 10,000 portraits of Americans who identify as anything other than 100% straight. And it is 100% amazing. I cannot wait to talk to him all about it. Welcome, Io, to our show. Yay! Thank you for having me. I uh, would like to mention before we begin that when we first scheduled to come on the show, we normally record on Tuesdays, and then your rep was like, oh, we can't record on election day, so let's push it to Thursday. So now we're recording on the Thursday after election day, totally on pins and needles. Nobody knows who the president is. It's totally fucking wild, and we appreciate you indulging us, even though it's still kind of the longest election day in the world. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) <laughs> I think we know who the president is. It's just a matter of if Tangerine Mussolini is going to fight it or not, I think, is what we're looking Tangerine at. Tangerine Mussolini. Like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we're all on the same page with that assessment. Um, like I said in the intro, Io, I think of you as a creative polymath. You are a writer, a photographer, an activist, an amazing podcaster. And now you're promoting this new book, Self-Evident Truths. It's 10,000 portraits of queer Americans. Can you please give our audience a quick rundown of your upbringing and the different stops that you've made on your way to this auspicious moment in your career? (laughs) Uh, We're going to need a lot more than an hour for all the stops. (laughs) Give us the quick and the dirty. Uh, Sure. Okay. The quick and the dirty. Well, um, I was born and raised on Third Street in the Bowery in New York. Um, in a different era, like a different New York, a New York that is now um, lionized in history books and and album art (laughs) and uh, Met Gala outfits. Um, My parents were big in the like punk no wave movement. Um, They were both addicts who were super, super creative, intellectual weirdos. Um, And we... God, I grew up in low-income housing um, amongst all of the people that were too weird to be wherever they came from. You know, everybody came to New York because, and came to that part of New York because they were the outcast or the the gay one or the strange one or the gender nonconforming one or the, you know, mentally unhinged one in whatever town they were born in. Um, And that made for a very unorthodox childhood um which you know it was equal parts unfortunate and extraordinary i was surrounded by the most creative people on earth and you know it was the the epicenter of of a lot of music and culture and and um art that's defined our world as it is now um but i didn't choose to be there whereas all those people did um 
which has its has its positives and negatives. I'm sure you can fill in the blanks there. Um, yeah, so I I uh, I spent a little bit of Europe uh, time in Europe when I was a teenager, but really I'm like a native New Yorker to the bone, and I lived there till I was 27. Um, at, when I was a kid, I was an actor. I was a I was a child actor, and I was a little broke hustler entrepreneur. You know, like I would make tissue ghosts and and sell them on the street, and I would get like Greek coffee cups and fill them with dirt from the park and put tomato seeds in them and sell them for a couple dollars here and there to try to get a happy meal when I could. And um, yeah, it was a really shoestring existence, but it had a lot of color and a lot of culture. And I started a magazine when I was 18 instead of going to college. I I flunked myself out of high school um, at least once so that I could keep taking classes at the new school because they had like a class free every semester. So I I went to a, a magazine publishing class. I was already publishing this like zine about stencil graffiti back when that was vaguely, I don't think it was ever cool, but it was not as bad as it sounds now. And uh, the teacher, I thought, oh, well, I should go to the magazine publishing class and figure out how to turn this into an actual viable business. And the first day of class, the teacher was like, well, I was sitting there with my skateboard under my feet. And he's like, the one thing you all have in common is that none of you have ever published a magazine before. And I was like, ah, uh, <laughs> you know, like raise my hand. And I mean, we all come from the same culture, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, so it became clear quickly that that was not where I should be. So I left graduated high school and started a business, which I ran for four or five years. And then, I mean, if you want the real dirty, dirty, I went to paper magazine and started paper TV in like 2003 or some shit when like video on the internet was just barely a thing. Mm -hmm. I had a couple columns with the New York times where I, I documented underground culture and weird performance. Um, and then, yeah, you know, one thing led to another and bigots tried to take gay marriage uh, off the table. And I was awakened to, well, first I was awakened to photography and then I was awakened to activism. Um, I'd always been active, you know, I'd always, you know, the, the anti-Iraq war protests, I was like on top of a, a newsstand on, on Park Avenue with camo pants when I was like 18. But um, yeah, there was something, something shifted around Prop 8 and the fight around Prop 8 in 2008, where I felt compelled to participate in something that I didn't realize I was a part of. Because like we said, I grew up in this era and this place where being queer wasn't weird. Um, being trans was, but being gay wasn't. And so it didn't really occur to me that I was a second class citizen in my own country until like 2008. And I just felt, you know, where, where's the disconnect between the people who are voting against our rights and the people that I know? How do we bridge that empathy gap? And so I decided to try to introduce people to each other. And this is in 2010. We didn't have marriage. We didn't have, you know, don't act, don't, don't ask, don't tell was still in effect. We didn't have workplace discrimination uh, protections in 37 states of this country. We had nothing. And um, I decided to photograph everyone I could get to, which at first was 35 people. And then it became, you know, let's do an open call. And then that became a couple hundred people. And gradually it became clear over the course of about two, two or three years that to make this a document of any consequence and to actually say that I had captured any real cross-section of queer America, I had to photograph a very large number of people and it had to be in every single state of this country. And so the number was uh, 10,000 and then it ended up taking me 10 goddamn years. And <laughs> here we are. And in the meantime, really you know, thank you. In the in the middle of that, I did a TED talk about it, which led to a weird speaking career where I went to all these schools and that the guy couldn't have beaten the door down to get into when I wanted thought I wanted to go to college for a second. And you know, I had a speaking career, and then I got asked to write a book about my childhood, and I did that, and then that led to making a podcast, which you know I've done everything once. <laughs> like, I love it. 
People asking me what I do at a dinner party is really disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the foreword to your new book is um, also, it's very moving as is your introduction. It's written by Patrice Cullors, the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement. How did you two come to work together and what is your personal involvement with Black Lives Matter? I'm deeply involved with BLM. Um, I am like pretty entrenched with BLM LA now. I'm very, very close to um, Future Khan, who's the international spokesperson for Black Lives Matter, um, who I met. I met them. I saw them speak at an event like five years ago. And they, at that point, were kind of like positioned as the founder of BLM Toronto and they had just barely moved here and they didn't really know anybody. And I just like beelined it for them after it was some stupid event that I didn't even know why I was there. Some random thing that somebody was like, do you want to go? And you're like, I don't know. Okay. And then you go (laughs) and you end up meeting your best friend. So um, I beelined it for them afterwards and was just like, listen, I'm IO. Remember my face. I don't know how we will know each other, but we will. I do this thing. And one day the goal is to go to the National Mall and install all these portraits. And I can't do it without BLM. It can't be without being in tandem with BLM. And I want to know you. And I don't know what that means. And it was like very weird and overly gregarious. And um, not long afterward, my friend Melody Asani, who's a designer here in LA, had like a speaker series at her shop. Um, and she had an event that I think was Patrice and Lena Waithe, maybe. I don't know, but there was something to do with Patrice where, uh, Patrice and I met each other. And then, um, shortly thereafter, Vogue asked me to shoot queer couples, like to document queer love. And... I asked Melody to put me in touch with Patrice because I wanted to photograph her in future because I thought they were such an incredible, they were also married. They were an incredible couple. Um, and I went and I, I photographed them and hung out with them at their house, which was terribly intimidating and incredible and really moving because um, future is an amateur competitive boxer and non-binary and an immigrant. And Patrice was telling me about how, um, this was in like 2017 maybe, um, how they get so many, no, this was in like 2016. They get so many death threats, you know, because Mm -hmm. of BLM. And she was talking about, you know, being a, a, black person, then being a black woman, then being an activist, then being the leader of BLM, and then being queer. You're just like <laughs> sliding down the rungs of safety in the United States. And they were talking about how they have no formalized security. And mm. so we were in their car and they're telling me all this and we're driving to a park where I asked them what they did every day and if I could document something that they did regularly. And then future was teaching her how to box and how to protect herself and I I was just like holy shit this is like literally the leadership of the most important civil rights movement of our generation teaching each other within their queer love like how to protect each other it was so beautiful and so um yeah now you know years later future came to me at some point last year and was like, well, okay, I've been vetting you for friendship for four years and you've been approved. <laughs> that's that's so a long weird. vetting process. That oh my so God. Cute. That motherfucker is very serious. If you've ever <laughs> been to their Instagram, you know that they are very serious. But um, yeah, now Future and I are very tight friends and I, I'm really entrenched with BLMLA. And when the book was becoming a thing, it was very obvious that Patrice was the person to write the foreword. You know, her voice, her presence, her existence is a gift. And thank God I asked her to write it right before, uh, you know, the what we now jokingly refer to, maybe not jokingly, as Black Spring. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
uh, yeah, so she had time to do it then. And she wrote such an incredible, beautiful forward. And I'm very honored and it feels Yeah, it's, it's, it's moving both that in conjunction with your introduction, it's a, it's a one, two punch to go with the metaphor. Uh, I mentioned in the intro that I first became a fan of yours last year when half of the bust office was obsessed with your podcast, The Ballad of Billy Balls. I'm just going to describe it quickly for those unfamiliar with the show. It's an investigative true crime show about a model named Rebecca who falls in love with a musician named Billy Balls in New York in 1977. And one day she comes home to their East Village apartment and finds out that Billy has been shot and police are searching their place. Billy survives for 10 days, but then he suddenly dies and is sent to an anonymous burial ground by the city. How is Billy killed? Where is his body? What happened? 37 years later, you are on the microphone interviewing people, trying to get answers to all of these questions. And the first of many, many big wow moments, I'm not spoiling the podcast, but the first big wow moment of the show happens early on when just as the listener is absolutely immersed in this mystery and this story and these questions, you reveal that Billy's grief-stricken girlfriend, Rebecca, is actually your mom. And so you're trying to solve this crime to give your own mom peace. And it's like the ultimate mic drop moment. Everyone's like, oh, shit. Um, I need to know, like, what has the aftermath been of this hugely personal investigation? What has it been like for you, for your mom? Um, like now so many people, so many know so much about your lives, um, both separately and together. Like, what has the aftermath of the Billy Balls phenomenon been like? Oh, first of all, you did such a good job of presenting that and then burying the lead and then ripping it out. Um, (laughs) Yeah, podcasts are weird, right? There's no like industry, really. It's just a bunch of people doing it on their own. So, I mean, there's a podcast industry, but there's no like awards or whatever. There's just like not formalized. There are awards, but it's not, it's not unilateral. It doesn't, it's It's not like. It's still the wild west. Yeah. On these streets. It's the wild west in these streets. And it, it, um, it's like a, it's, it's a strange, like silent kaboom where like all of a sudden you get all these emails and you get, like we set up, um. I really wanted to have a voicemail line. And so we set up a voicemail line. And to be honest with you, you know, at first I listened to it all the time. The show ended uh, not this past July, but the, the, yeah, the July 4th before that, 2019, July 4th, we ended, or August, I think was maybe our last bonus episode. And I listened to the voicemails at first, you know, combing through to make bonus episodes and just kind of hear what was up. But uh, one of the associate producers, this young guy, Kevin, had the login. And so I just didn't keep up with the voicemails. And then a couple of months ago, my manager was asking me to, we were putting together a pitch for something. And she was like, I want you to pull some of the voicemails from the, the Billy Bob. Like you guys collected voicemails, right? And I was like, oh, yeah, we did. I wonder how many there are. There were fucking 700. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And I was just, just like... <laughs> smells oh shit and i listen to all of them and i i'll tell you this there's a lot of crying and there's a lot of you made me revisit my relationship with so and so you made me rethink how i approach my mom you made me rethink forgiveness i didn't see this coming there was a lot of like my favorites were like truck drivers who were crying, you know, like you could tell like dudes who aren't used to feeling a lot were like, oh man, like you got me. You know? oh. I, mean, I love that shit. So that was really cool and beautiful. And there were a lot, a lot of emails from people through the like form on my website that were just like, you know, you moved me this way or it moved me that way. And it, that 
it's just so beautiful. People, a lot of people being like, I've never written anybody before like this in my life, but I felt like I had to. This is not my usual way. Like I don't write to, you know, whatever hosts of stuff. Um, it was really beautiful. But then like, it's a podcast. So, like it's something, there's like a Oscar on my mantle or something, you know? <laughs> you have an Oscar in their hearts, a Podsker. I have, yeah. 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 I would nominate you for a Podsker if there was one. <laughs> has, has any other info come to light since you made the show? Um, I'll tell you this. Uh, the, there's a person at the end of the show who, you will understand this. I'm trying mm-hmm. not to spoiler for everybody who's listening, but a person who is very key, who we find at the at some point in the show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm who immediately died thereafter. Really? Yep. Wow. I don't know if it was a hex cast by a certain other leading person in the show or what, but it might be. <laughs> he is no longer with us. And that other person is known to be very witchy and very powerful. So it's possible, but yeah, oh, wow. that guy is no longer alive. So we, uh, we got to talk to him just at the last moment. Unbelievable. Remind me not to cross that other certain someone. Yeah. Oh, it's generally not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> In your memoir, Darling Days, you wrote about your journey being designated female at birth, telling your parents that you felt like a boy at age six, then redeclaring yourself a girl at 14. And then after the memoir already went to print in 2016, you came out as a trans man at age 31 at arguably a high point of your public visibility. What has it been like going through redefinition of your gender identity in public as a public person? Um, you know, uh, that's a tough question to answer. Mm. In 2016, it did not go well Um, okay I we were so I was on this like very bad spin-off of catfish on MTV for one season and it the the it was like right before my book was coming out and the side effect of that was that suddenly there were a lot of people on social media who were paying attention to everything that I did and every story that I posted. And they clocked that I had started using male pronouns before that was like an official whatever. And so Mm -hmm. um, when the publicist for the book reached out and was like, okay, I know that there's some pronoun shifting going on. We need to start writing press release and going out to press. How do you want to deal with this? my agent was like, can you hold off until the book is out? And I thought long and hard about it. And I was like, the conclusion that I came to was no, because if there's Mm -hmm. anything I'm bad at, it's being inauthentic. And like, I couldn't imagine doing an entire press cycle as a she and like having people ask me questions about eight years of my life as a child where I lived as my real self as if it were me living as a false self. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't figure out how to, like the entire premise of a memoir is honesty. And I was just like, I can't see a world in which I could do this in a, in a guarded way. So I told the publicist and I told the publisher, look, I'm actually a boy and I was right when I was three and this is what it's got to be. And they, the publisher, the publicist, my agent, everybody was phenomenal. They, they had my back so hard. The press was not. Mm. And by that, I don't mean that anyone was transphobic, but I mean that everybody said trans author, da, 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 da. Trans author Io Tillett Wright, trans activist, and the the caveat of trans before my name 
And also even just the word trans before the word man, it Mm. created a caveat to my artistry and to my existence that felt like it was something that we had to talk about before we could talk about what I had written. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it, unfortunately, in 2016, you know, we're still not where we need to be with trans shit now, but we were far further along, far less further along at that point than mm-hmm. uh, we are now. And and the, the cumulative effect, I think, on the an inexperienced, unexposed psyche, and by that I mean like the general American populace doesn't know a trans person, mm-hmm. you associate trans people with the characters you've seen in movies, which is drug addicts and prostitutes and like people who are not generally what you would think of as reliable narrators Mm. and when you couple that with a memoir in the age of james fry or the age of you know the jt Leroy saga what you Mm -hmm. get is mistrust and what Mm, you get is people not wanting to read it so it made people unable to actually it was like my book suddenly ends up on the queer shelf and on the trans shelf and on the LGBT shelf, when actually my book is not about that. My book is about survival. My book is about New York. My book about, you know, mental illness in parents or addiction in parents or poverty or, you know, 85 other things before it's about that. But because I'm trans, people fetishized it and were so fascinated by it that that's what they needed to talk about. And like, to be honest with you, Trans is not even something that I identify with. I don't feel like a trans man. I feel like a man. And I have this experience in my history, but queer politics has gotten so convoluted and complicated and tenuous and explosive. There's facets of it that I really identify with, but facets of it that I don't identify with at all. And part of that is like, we live in a in an era of a lack of nuance about trans stuff, where everything under the trans umbrella is lumped in as one thing. And there are a lot of non-binary people pushing for visibility right now. And the truth of the matter is, I have a very binary existence. Like, I'm not nuanced in my gender identity really at all much to like my girlfriend and my family's chagrin like I'm a like boring hammer wielding like brute half the time you know and it's like a fascinating weird thing that I was born with a vagina but I'm not non-binary and I so like having to decipher those and parse those two things in this era is tricky and complicated. So I generally don't, I don't try to like talk about it very much because it, it it's really layered and really complicated. And I don't often feel represented or seen by the modern trans culture or movement. So mm-hmm. I, I also am like not somebody, I think part of growing up with so much trauma is like, part of my survival mechanism has been not making that the center point of my identity. So I think because of that, I learned that like while being trans is something that I had to figure out and something that caused me a great deal of distress and pain and struggle, it's not the thing that I want people to see first when they look at me. What is what the thing that you want people to see first? I don't know, the nuance that you see when you meet anybody for the first time, you know, like whatever, maybe you don't like me, maybe you like my teeth, maybe you, I don't know, you want to talk about my tattoos, maybe you like my podcast, maybe you want to talk about my book or, you know, my photo project had, you know, whatever. But I don't Mm -hmm. want you to look at me and go, ooh, was that person born female? Or ooh, do I have to worry about what pronouns I use with this person? Or ooh, like this person is an emblem of 
a specific set of political ideologies that I heard about on Reddit that I now have to tiptoe around. I don't want to deal with any of that shit. I just want Mm -hmm. to be fucking nuanced as anybody else. That totally makes sense. Um, I wanted, I wanted to ask you about an article that you wrote that I found very brave and that I, I think continues to be, um, become more relevant over time. In, in 2016, I read an article that you wrote for Refinery29 called Why I Called 911. And uh, the article is about seeing firsthand Johnny Depp's abuse of your friend Amber Heard while they were married. Um, just to, I'm just going to read one paragraph from the article to give our listeners a sense of it. You wrote, in December, she described an all-out assault and she woke up with her pillow covered in blood. I know this because I went to their house. I saw the pillow with my own eyes. I saw the busted lip and the clumps of hair on the floor. I got the phone call immediately after it happened, her screaming and crying, a stoic woman reduced to sobs. I understood her heartbreak. Johnny Depp had been my friend too, a person I loved very much, a person I had once referred to as a brother, a person with whom I had laughed at the absurdity of the media and their spicy claims about my role in their family, a person who came to my rescue in my darkest hour, who I have credited with saving my own life, who I lived with for a year by his invitation while I healed and worked. I knew him to be soft and gentle with a temper and a dark side, but a golden heart. I didn't want to believe it either until I saw the wreckage. You went on to describe calling 911 when you heard Johnny threatening Amber and you heard her cry out for help when you were on the phone with her. And then this year, you testified about that same incident at a hearing for Johnny Depp's defamation suit against a UK tabloid that called him a wife beater. In the last four years, I've seen a lot of anger hurled in your direction on social media by Johnny Depp fans who constantly accuse you and Amber of lying because they don't want to think of Johnny Depp in that way. I I wonder what are your thoughts now on your decision to speak up in this way, publicly saying that domestic abuse is not okay, no matter how beloved the perpetrator is. Do you feel tempted to defend yourself against all of these accusations? How are you sort of managing the revival of this controversy because of the you having to testify at that hearing? Well, three days ago, she won. Yeah. So I think I feel very differently about it right now than I did last week. But um, this is not something that I've... Uh, typically answered questions about to the media, but given that um, that verdict just came down, like I will say not a whole ton because I don't want to open the the swarm of bullshit that has plagued my life. But I will say that um, for the last four years, I have watched this person Um, I've watched two people be twisted and mangled by this experience. One in a more predictable way, which is Amber has been battered in a way, uh, again, by a man's decision to punish her for speaking about her own experience in incredibly torturous ways being sued for 50 million dollars is not an act of logic it's an act of punishment and for the last four years she's done nothing she's been able to do nothing except defend herself and so she's therefore been able to do nothing except think about the abuse that was perpetrated on her mm-hmm. and define it and redefine it and redefine it for lawyers and lawyers and lawyers and lawyers and lawyers. And she's spent every dime that she's been able to make, despite the fact that her reputation has been tarnished on defending herself. In addition to that, she has withstood a hailstorm, a daily 
storm of hundreds and thousands of people telling her that she's a piece of shit, she should rot, she should die, she should kill herself, she's worth nothing. Thousands of people starting petitions to get her fired to make it so that she can never work again. All of this because of a fantasy that they have about a man that they've never met. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I see Johnny being twisted by this experience because he was very clear during the tenure of their relationship that these physical assaults were out of bounds. He Hmm. apologized to me for it many times. He apologized to her for it profusely every time. He was vocal about it to everyone around them. And um, he got manipulated, I think, by a lawyer who convinced him of things that were not real and convinced him of the potential for a legal victory that was a fantasy because people don't ever have Johnny's best interest in mind, I think with the exception of his children. Um, I think unilaterally in his life for the last That's 30 really years. sad. It's incredibly sad. And I bonded with him over the fact that I, we come from a lot of similar trauma and we care about a lot of the same art and we express ourselves in much the same way. We feel things in a lot of the same ways. And I would never take any money from him. I refused. He wanted to pay for my, he wanted to buy my book. He wouldn't put it out through his imprint. He wanted to give me money for my photo project. You know, money is one of the ways that he expresses love. And I refused. And he knew that I was never going to use him in that way. And that made him trust me. And it's so ironic that now people try to paint it as though it was some some hoax that we perpetrated because it was incredibly painful for all of us to have to out his dirty laundry because we knew that the world was going to vilify him for it. And we thought that he vilified himself enough in private. That man tortures himself enough in private. And unfortunately, somebody got in his ear and convinced him to make a really terrible choice for himself, which was to sue because when you sue somebody, all of the facts have to come out. And if I didn't know better, if I wasn't in Amber's inner circle, I would think that this lawyer was on her team because he destroyed him. Mm -hmm. He convinced him to take this all the way to the mat. And now all of this is public. And the really sad thing is all of these people on the internet have spent four years trying to destroy her and trying to destroy me and trying to intimidate every witness and make it impossible for us to pop up anywhere because they attack us and attack us and discredit us and say that we're, you know, I'm an abuse apologist. I'm this, I'm that queer people saying that I'm a piece of shit. I've devoted my life to fighting for the rights of the marginalized and To hear that, to have those people come out and say like, oh, having him in your pride campaign or having him on your podcast is a mistake. I'm boycotting you. I'm not. It's like it's painful, but it's a testament to misinformation and it's a testament to how easily we believe things without any actual evidence. After all that, all this time of those people saying we want justice. We want, you know, these big words. This is perjury. Da, 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 da. Let's wait for justice. And then you have the one person who's ever heard all of the facts, the judge, unequivocally come down on her side. And they're still out there with their fucking stupid hashtags, justice for Johnny Depp. This man who said, yeah, I would kill her and burn her and fuck her corpse. Fuck that. And they're still hounding me across the internet. I feel for them. Io Tillett Wright, I would like to know, are you a feminist? Of course I'm a feminist. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. How has your career shaped your feminism or vice versa? Oh, 
what's the difference between my career and my existence and my feminism? They're all like completely intertwined. Love that, that answer. Love that like, answer. There's no separation. There's no like my feminism is learning while my career is thriving. It's like they just are one and the same. But um, my fundamental belief is always that everyone is equally capable and everyone is equally um, visionary when allowed to be. And I don't mean that in like a, a, a like trite sense. I mean that in a literal sense. And so when I see that being forgotten, I tend to go and like fight for it. So I think feminism is a fundamental tenet of everything. <laughs> so what is there with feminism? Same. <laughs> How uh, are you thinking about the rest of this completely crazy, unprecedented year? What is on your vision board for the rest of 2020? What are your hopes and your dreams and your goals for wrapping up this very strange year like i'm trying to get through tomorrow yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying to get through the end of the week i truly haven't even like i started thinking about christmas and i like almost talked about it with rachel and we were like what like i i have no fucking idea i don't know where i'm gonna live i don't know what i'm gonna be doing so like if covid has taught me anything it's that like and I already knew this, but we have no control over anything. We have, our eyes don't bend around corners. We don't know what the fuck is coming down the pike. And like, I hope, and I, I really dreamed that Jackie Lacey would be taken out as the DA of Los Angeles. She got voted out, motherfucker, bye-bye. And I really hoped that Donald Trump would be voted out. He got voted out, we think, pretty much. Um... Puh, puh, spit in the sky. I like your optimism, but we, we're still <laughs> hanging on a thread right now. That fucking prick. I, I don't give him as much power. I, I I just, I don't, I don't give him the power that he wants. I just, I'm like, nah, you can't, you can't just steal everything. Um, <laughs> my dream <laughs> at this point is like very simple. I hope that there is a way to safely get the people that I love rapid tested so that we can sit together and stuff our fucking faces for some like, you know, indigenous ceremony towards the end of the year. And like that no more black people are killed by the police and that, you know, COVID that we find a vaccine soon. Like I've got very base hopes and dreams for yeah. 2020 and then i hope that it's fucking over and 2021 is better yeah. yeah this is my final question and it's my final question for every interview that we do on pop tarts and that question is what you watching it is a broad question we want to know hmm. uh about tv shows and movies and books and music and music videos and podcasts and anything that you are consuming pop culturally, we want to know it because it's probably very cool. Io Tillett Wright, what you watching? Um, I watch a podcast. Or I watch. I listen to a podcast every week called Swindled that I love. That's like a totally independently produced podcast by uh, a guy who calls himself a concerned citizen. It's like, he's like, this show is produced by me, a concerned citizen. And I love that. <laughs> and it's just really like... He picks really cool stories about scams and con artists, and I just fucking love it. Um, my friend Mark Smirling, who I made my show with, made a podcast called Morally Indefensible that's a uh, spinoff of, or it's not a spinoff, it's like the podcast companion to an FX show that he also made um, about uh, a really old murder case. And, and it's just, it's cool. It's That's really good. Um Fuck, me and my friend Brandon started watching a new show last night, and I can't remember what it was. I always look forward to anything Black Mirror-related. Um, oh, yeah, I love Black Mirror. 
I love Borat. I'm a, that's just like my humor nailed. Like smart shit, dumb, done dumb is perfect yeah. for me. So like, I love. Did you like the new one? I loved it. I loved it, and I, it makes me feel equal parts smarter and stupider. And I, <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy that. Do you that. have thoughts on the famous Giuliani moment? I mean. Look, that guy is like walking garbage and he's been walking <laughs> garbage for 30 fucking years. He's probably been walking garbage his whole life. So like, was he trying to fuck a 15 year old? Probably. Did hey. I see that in the moment that they decided was what we were looking at? Not necessarily, but like the guy's fucking walking garbage. So probably if they let the camera run 10 more minutes, they would have gotten him jerking off. But like, you know, I I don't buy into this, these propaganda freakouts. Like, you know? <laughs> Giuliani is garbage. We need. We know this. We don't need we know him into his yeah. pants to know that. <laughs> Truth. Yeah, he was just adjusting himself. Oh my! Io till it right. I have enjoyed speaking with you so much. This hour has flown by. Thank you. I so appreciate much. you coming on the show so much. Thank you so thank much you. for having me, and thank you for your incredibly well-researched questions. <laughs> oh, you're so welcome. Yeah. Um, Callie and I are going to take the briefest of breaks. And when we come back, I'm going to ask Callie. And Callie is going to ask me, what, what you watching? I want to take a quick second to talk to you guys about tights. I used to dread tight season, buying endless tights with none of them ever fitting right. And some of them not fitting at all. To be honest, I'd almost given up. Who needs the pain of being cut in half, a saggy crotch, and baggy ankles? But I kept seeing these cute dresses and skirts which I just love to wear. So when I heard about Snag, I thought I'd give tights a final chance. And the good news is, they've solved just about every tights issue I had, and are totally size inclusive, from sizes 2 to 34. Finally, I can be completely comfy in butter soft tights and wear the skirts and dresses I want. No falling down, rolling, or pain. They also have epic colors and patterns. I'm literally obsessed. You obviously need a pair, so go to snagtights.us today and fix your fashion life. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes, and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google Calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have We all have a docket. Sex? Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> Scams? I'm Caitlin I'm Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German-Russian heiress, and she seems like she has a lot of money, and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. Which Amazing. Was so smart. I mean, <laughs> so like smart. To, I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. And we're back. Hello. Callie. Yes. We just talked to Io Tillett Wright, and it was great. It was wonderful. And now... 
Yes. I want to know and I need to know from you, Callie Watts, what you watching. What am I watching? I've been obsessed and completely devoured um, the show Two Weeks to Live on HBO. It's a revenge comedy uh, starring Maisie Williams, you know, from uh, Game of Thrones. And it's about a teen girl who was raised by her mom, like in a bunker type situation where her mom always thought the world was going to end and kept her away from everything. And her on brand for right now. (laughs) Yes. And her dad had been murdered in front of her when she was six. So she runs away from home to seek revenge. And she's like totally, you know, like uh, oblivious to how the world works. And she gets these two guys play a prank on her. I don't think this ruins the show because this is the whole setup for the whole thing. And they play a prank on her where she thinks by setting it up to (laughs) she didn't know the Internet existed so they made it look like the world was exploding they just played a clip of like youtube or something so she she thought the world was going to end and so then she goes to like find the guy that killed her dad and she is like a little ninja warrior she there's so much blood there's so much brutal fight scenes the fight scenes are amazing it is brutal it's such such a good show it gives me everything I need. Comedy, blood, wow. Maisie Williams. It was great. Then I also watched Greta on Netflix. Did you see that yet? Yeah, that's the Greta that's the Greta Thunberg documentary, right? She's such an amazing person. Um, and so inspirational, but it was so depressing. So watch to cry. Um and and then just to round it all out, I watched the SpongeBob musical on Nickelodeon. <laughs> <laughs> was it so cute? It was so cute. It was actually really, really funny, kind of political. I really and I never really watched SpongeBob, but the musical was great. It was awesome. <laughs> um, awesome. What have you been watching? Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Callie. Um, I've been watching trash. Um <laughs> but such good trash. There is a brand new Real Housewives um cast that's just debuted on november 11th it's the real housewives of salt lake city utah of course real housewives are on bravo and it focuses on um like six women living in salt lake city utah i thought it was going to be all like white bread mormons but it's actually a very fascinating mixed bag there's two jewish women which you know as a jew myself i am always on the lookout for jewish housewives there's two in Salt Lake City. One is like an actual like Jewish person who uh, came there recently from Chicago. And the other one was like raised totally secular. And then her mom converted to Mormonism and they moved to Salt Lake City. And so she's actually a, a uh, like a, she was born into a Jewish family, but she was raised Mormon, which is fascinating. Whoa. To me. And then and then there's there is one. I thought the cast was going to be all white. It is not. There is um, a woman who's Hawaiian and then there's an who was Mormon and then converted to Islam. And then there's a black woman who is Pentecostal and she married her step grandfather, <laughs> which is some wild shit like her marriage was arranged by her grandmother and who like put in her will, like when, if I die, I want you to marry like one of my girls. And so she was one of them. So she's not genetically related to this grandfather that she is married to, but she is married to her step grandfather in wild. What is the age? And she is a lot. I don't know what it exactly (laughs) is, but you know, like at least 30 years and she's, she's, uh, the pastor of her own Pentecostal church and it's so funny because she's like a, like a holy ruler woman of God but she is the shadiest she like was allegedly friends at one point with the Hawaiian one but then she said that she didn't want to be near her because she smelled like hospital and the reason what? that the Hawaiian woman smelled like hospital was because she had been frequently visiting her auntie who was in the hospital getting her both legs amputated. And so she was saying, like, Shame. don't be mean to 
me and shade me for smelling like hospital when I'm visiting my aunt. <laughs> and then like I'm like I'm like the like um you know they do the asides where they're just doing the one-on-one interviews to have them comment on what's going on like the pentecostal minister woman who was like she's probably getting her legs amputated because she didn't take care of herself she's not even that old like she was she was shading the aunt who was getting her legs amputated. it was shade on shade on shade it was just (laughs) there's only been one episode and it's already so legendary it's like probably going to be my favorite of the franchise i cannot wait oh my god watch another um (laughs) <laughs> and an oldie but goodie that I've been experiencing for the first time because when it first came out, I was in college and didn't have television, is Living Single. Oh, we are Hulu. living single, single in a 90s, 90s kind of world. I got my girl. Keep your head up. What? Keep your head up. That's right. <laughs> Camilla calls that the living in the 90s show. <laughs> It, it, oh my God, every episode of Living Single is on Hulu. It's so good. It's so good. For for anyone who hasn't seen it, it was on Fox from 1993 to 1998. Um, it was just, just a little bit longer than when I was in college. So I never saw it first run. I also didn't see Friends because Friends was sort of like around that time. You also. didn't miss anything with that. <laughs> I saw Friends a couple of times. I thought it was excruciatingly boring and stupid and I did not like it. But Living Single is everything i love the show it's so funny queen latifah stars in living single as khadijah james who is an editor of a magazine in brooklyn just like me (laughs) just like me only she owns the magazine and i just edit the magazine but i i relate to khadijah and her basketball shorts very much (laughs) and i i love that um kim fields from facts of life is on there with every wig in the world Mm -hmm. um Kim Kim Coles, I hadn't really experienced too much before this, but she is so good as Sinclair. I love Living Single at the Best. It is. Um, and then the the third thing that I'm watching is tidying up with Marie Kondo. I read the book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, a few years ago because our former editor Erica lent it to me. And I conmarried, I did like halfway conmarried the apartment. And then as happens, like I started accumulating clutter again. And so I am gearing up over the holidays to do a full KonMari. KonMari is the method of Marie Kondo. A full clean out, decluttering and organizing every possession that I own. She's the one that's, uh, does it give you joy? Yeah, uh, her, her method, Marie Kondo, in Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, which is on Netflix, which I'm watching now, she goes through her method um, with all these different families, and it's very heartwarming. But her whole idea is you you pull out everything that you own of a certain type. Like first you do clothes, and then you do books, and then you do papers, and then you do like all your kitchen stuff. So you pull out everything that's alike, and then you go through all of it, and you hold each item in your hand, and you determine whether or not that item sparks joy. If you hold it and you love it and you're so happy to see it, you keep it. And if you, it feels dead and lifeless and it, you feel meh about it, you thank it for its service and you discard it in some way. And like her method is so popular that like there were reports all over the US and the UK where like donations to charity shops like skyrocketed. I remember that. As a result of both the book and the show Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, it came out on Netflix last year. It's totally worth returning to. I'm going to read the book again, too, um, because I need to get rid of my clutter. <laughs> and I'm, I'm psyched for it. And that, my friend, is what I've been watching, except the last thing I've been watching, of course... Of course. The amazing, majestic, stupendous Pop-Tarts Patreon page, which has made its debut in the world and it's the best we really need your help to keep bust alive right now and hopefully you'll be excited by all the goodies that we have hooked up for pop tarts listeners at patreon.com slash pop tarts podcast callie and i with help from our team have been typing up show notes exclusively for patreon donors that include links to what every single guest and what we have been watching for all the episodes, we're in the, the high 90s now, people. We're almost up to 100 episodes. Yeah. And we've also got t- 
totally ad-free episodes for you. There's exclusive content on there, like an amazing episode with Big Frida. And there's other goodies at different patron levels. We just sent out care packages of so much swag to our highest level donors and um, so much more. So please check it out at patreon.com slash Podcast. We appreciate it. And of course... Thanks to our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. <laughs> Logan. And our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily, but you cannot find Callie on social media, so don't try, right? Right. But you can email both of us. I'm at Emily Rams at bust.com. Callie W at bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out, and we super duper appreciate it. Until next time. Look, that guy is like walking garbage, and he's been walking garbage for 30 fucking years. He's probably been walking garbage his whole life. So, like, was he trying to fuck a 15-year-old? Probably. It is Whoa. It is brutal. Whoa. It is brutal. Whoa.